You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. And so today we come to part three. We've been taking three weeks to kind of really rest uh, in this space where we're talking about who are we? What has God called us to as his people? And today's part three, we're going to look at connecting what it means to connect people to their community, right? This is part of our call to engage in God's mission, uh, to not just exist within the four walls of a church community, uh, but to take that good news and to show and tell it to the world. Uh, We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 22 today. Luke 22, just a short passage, but a good one. Uh, Luke 22, starting in verse 24. Uh, And just a context here, quickly here, so you know who's talking. Jesus is reclining at the table, the Passover meal with his disciples, and a conversation arises. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, this is Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." This is God's word. Uh, Well, we're talking about our calling uh, to connect people to their community. We're talking specifically about the core conviction that we are to be a community on mission. And a community on mission is a community of people who are faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in posture and action. We are a faithful witness of posture and action. This is showing and telling, telling the community of God's word, showing it in our lives. And we must also be careful though, whenever we talk about God's mission and what it means to live as a follower of Jesus, that we're careful not to build our identity on the things that we do. Because it's so easy to fall into that trap that our identity is on the work that we do or even the mission that we engage in in our community. For instance, we're, we're, not, we're not Christians because we go to church or share our lives with others or read the Bible or share our faith. We don't stop being Christians if we stop doing those things for a season. Rather, these things are expressions. We engage in community with one another. We engage in God's word. We share our lives. We confess our sins. We support the work of God's mission. We do all these things as expressions of our identity. And so we are... We're also, though, conditioned so much by our culture that we are because of what we do. We sometimes think that we are what we accomplish, what we accumulate. And so it's so counterintuitive to live out of this reality that we are God's, the benefactors of his grace. So we don't have to do in order to be loved. We don't have to work in order to be accepted. But because we've been loved, we can now live in light of that. You know, we fall into this trap. I know I do as, as, a, as a parent so often. You know, maybe you're like me, and maybe you only tell your children at times that you love them when they are making you happy. 
Do you only tell your children you love them when you're, they're making you happy? Do you only tell them that you're proud of them right after that they do something really awesome? Uh, compliments are often paired with affirmations. Here's an example. You did such a great job. I'm so proud of you. Compliment, affirmation. You're so beautiful. I love you so much. Compliment, affirmation. Thank you for saying you're sorry. You can sleep inside tonight. You know, compliment, affirmation. You with me on that? So we, we so often tie these two things together. Here's what you did. It makes me happy. Now here's a reward. Things like that. They should also hear you were so disobedient. What you did was wrong, but I am so very glad that I am your dad. Makes my heart happy to be your mom, even when you are disobedient. It's so counterintuitive to treat people like that. It's possible and even likely that how we treat people in the world and in our lives that we interact with unknowingly is conditioned by this worldly view that we are because of what we do. That we believe that our love and affection and favor for people is tied to their behavior or how much they bless us. This creeps into our posture as we engage in God's mission all the time. We don't always recognize it because it's subtle, but it creeps into that. We engage in God's mission only to the degree that we can see that those people are serving our needs or they're blessing us or they're willing to do the things we think that they should do. And Jesus points this out in this first verse. And this, he says, this is what ungodly leaders do. This is what ungodly leaders do. Ungodly leaders operate by this principle. Either it's me who is going to suffer or you that is going to suffer, and I know it's not going to be me. Verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He says this, he says ungodly leaders operate in this way. Ungodly leaders benefit at the expense of the service and the labor and the suffering of others. Rather than out of an expression of their joy in their calling to exercise their leadership, their power, their influence, their privilege, their resources for the good of others and as an expression of their position and their calling. And so Jesus says to them, that's what ungodly leaders do, but not so with you. We're going to do something totally different. Those who follow me are going to live in a completely different way. In contrast to how the world lives, in contrast to how people treat their enemies, in contrast to how people treat those who are different from them, not so with you. If you follow me, you're going to be utterly different. You know, I love this so much. Sometimes Jesus speaks in metaphors and hyperboles and allegories. He speaks in parables all the time. And sometimes we just want to say, Jesus, just tell us clearly how it is we are supposed to live. And he says, okay, if you want to follow me, you're not going to act like the world. You want to be powerful? You need to learn how to be a servant. If you want to, be, if you want to pursue the good life, you need to know the, the meaning of true sacrifice. If you want to be strong and mighty, 
You need to learn how to use your strength and your good, not for selfish gain, but for the good of others. That's how people are going to act when they follow me. And so what he's doing is he is, he is taking a look at the ungodly leadership of the world and then what strong, courageous, and compassionate leadership looks like under his authority. And he is dismantling the ungodly leadership of the world and he then launches into how to be a faithful witness to the world using our resources, using our strengths, using our gifts, using our position that we have in order to be a witness of his kingdom in the world. In this passage, he has a lot to say about our posture and our practices, our habits, and also our, our posture, the way, that we, the way that we engage in the world in mission. And so let's look at a few of these things. Let's look at three together, this posture and practice of how to engage in God's mission. The first is connecting in our community means that we are looking beyond your own interests. Connecting people to their community, engaging in the mission of God, means looking beyond your own interests. First, there's a subtle rebuke in Jesus' confrontation with his disciples, a subtle rebuke. They're arguing, isn't this interesting? They're arguing about who will be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And his rebuke is as if to ask, um, you know who else is obsessed with greatness all the time? Those who are more concerned with looking good than doing good for others. When Jesus says that the kings of the Gentiles exert lordship, they are called benefactors. They're doing this for themselves. They're exercising lordship. They're wanting to be great so that they can have a better life. He means that their exercise of greatness and power is really a way just to serve themselves and to seek their own reward. Their pursuit of being great is motivated by self-absorbed vanity. You look at the preceding passage, they're eating together, they're, they're dining together. This is a, a really special moment together. And there, Jesus is at the Passover meal, and often the Passover meal was a way for God's people to rehearse the work of God that he did in the past for them when he rescued them out of Egypt, when he saved them uh, from uh, the angel of death, where he rescued them by his mighty power and his great mercy. And they were to rehearse this great, good, this great act of God every year. But here Jesus gathers in the Passover, and he's not talking about what God has done in the past, but he's talking to them about what he will do in the future. He's talking about what will happen in his own lives, his own life. And here Jesus is saying what is about to come. He says, my body will be broken, my blood will be shed, my, my blood will be poured out for you. And all of this is to secure your freedom in God. It is to secure your eternal destiny in God's joy. It is for your forgiveness, for your relationship with God. It is for your salvation. And he says, in order for this to be accomplished, I must lose my life for you. I will suffer for you, I will suffer for you to accomplish what you cannot accomplish on your own. I will be taken from you, and where I'm going, you cannot come. You will search for me, but you will not find me, and you will weep at my loss, but one day I will, I will resurrect from the grave, and I will return, and we will be in the fullness of joy forever together. And immediately after this, they lean into one another and say, I wonder which one of us is going to be the best. 
Isn't that something? Everything, Jesus just goes on this great sermon, this great fellowship with them, talking about the great rewards and blessings that they will have because of his mercy and grace. And the immediate thought that they have in their mind is, how will this benefit me for my own gain? Crazy, right? I wonder if Jesus had something to like throw at them. I wish, I, I wonder if he, maybe he did. It just wasn't recorded. <clears throat> Sounds great. Forgiveness, relationship with my creator, eternal salvation, dying and painful death of Jesus on the cross for us. Sounds good. What I want to know is who will I be better than in this new reality? And who will serve me in this new reality? Their question itself and we know this, right? This is humiliating in the way that their hearts are engaging with this good news. Their questioning itself is a failure to grasp the gospel. It is a failure to grasp the gospel when we, get, when we gaze on the beauty of God's grace and then wonder, how will we win in this? How will we make it for us? We are experts at making God's blessing all about us. We're just, we're experts at that. We, we're just so good at that. I include myself in that as well. Take God's blessings and we make it all about us. Here's the gospel failure. We can't save ourselves. No amount of personal accomplishment or greatness can merit God's love or acceptance. So it's foolishness to talk about who deserves what in the new kingdom. That's the gospel failure, to even think who deserves what in the new kingdom. Because none of us deserve any of it. The ancient world and the modern world viewed success in a, in a very similar way. In the same way, to help others only to the degree that it helps us. We help others only to the degree that it helps us. And that's the ancient failure of leadership, and it's the modern failure of leadership. Jesus says, and feel the weight of what he says, but not so with you. You will not fail in this way. Those who follow me will live by a completely different way. You will not serve others in order to serve yourself. You will serve others the way that I have served you. When your grasp of what Jesus has done for you becomes the center of your life, it will cause you to look beyond yourself, mainly because you are deeply aware that all blessings came from beyond yourself. You can look outside yourself because you know that everything you have is out, has come from outside of yourself. We are blessed by a gracious God we have been blessed to be a blessing, and these blessings we do not deserve. What are we but for the grace of God? Everything we have is, is a sheer grace. And so Jesus is dismantling this view that, that we serve and for the benefit that we serve just for our own benefit that we must look beyond our own interests to the interests of others. And, and also, connecting people to their community and serving others, it's, it's also an outward movement of love and service. It's not just looking at the needs of others, it's actually an, an outward movement of love and service. So Jesus uses a very simple and very powerful 
uh, figure of speech here, what he does next. And he says, the greatest should be the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So this is for those, and I appreciate this as well, what Jesus says. He is such a, he's a perfect orator and pastor and communicator. And he, I love what he says here. This is for those who say, so what is it then? To be a Christian, follow Jesus, is, is just about everybody else? It's just about others. That's what I'm supposed to do, lay down my life, and I just can't be happy in life? Well, then this passage is for you as well, because he's, get, he's getting to that. He says, you know, no. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is after is not for followers to forfeit their gifts and to forfeit their strengths and to forfeit their uh, privilege, but rather to adopt a theology of the cross. And he knows that many of us don't understand what this means. A theology of the cross is where God says, it seems like you're losing, but you're really not. He says, I want you to think differently about all the things that you have. It is not about just losing everything in life. It is thinking differently about the stuff that you have. So engaging in God's mission in the world is not about what we give up, but what we gain. The cross is where God says what looks like a loss is actually a gain. Jesus dying on the cross looks like failure, but it's actually a win. What seems weak is actually strong. Even death itself which should be the end of all things, is the most glorious act of God that we have seen. We usually think that if we pour out our lives for others, it's a loss to ourselves. And Jesus says, I want you to, I want you to flip that upside down. We got it all upside down. That's what the world says. The world says to spend of yourself for others is a, is a, is a net loss. And Jesus says, you got to think differently about what it means to be weak and to lose and to give your life to others. We are gaining a better perspective. We are working towards something far better. And Jesus knows the temptation of his disciples to see weakness and loss and and giving our time and energy um, to others as something that's just like, that we don't wanna do. He knows this. And he knows our temptation. And our temptation is to be people of greatness. Our temptation is to be people of high esteem. Our temptation is to be people who are successful in this world. And he says, you need to think differently about success. You need to think differently about the path to greatness. No one wants to be a person who's truly lowly. No one wants to be a person who's truly humble. No one has ever told me that their favorite Bible verse is Luke 9, 23. Pick up your cross and follow me. No one has said that. That's Jesus actually says, pick up your cross and follow me. You know, what, you know what people's favorite verse is? Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My favorite verse, the verse that says I get to be really strong and great, which is ironic because Paul says that as the strength that God has given him to exist in utter weakness. <laughs> we like the verses that, that contribute to our own greatness. We love the verses that convince us that, see, I meant to be powerful and successful and not fail. And I, it, we want to be great. We want to be successful. We want to be influential. We want to be remembered. We want to be uh, admired. Me too. I want that as well. But in God's economy, it will not come in the same way that the world pursues it. Greatness and success and influence and admiration and legacy does not come 
in God's economy the same way it comes in the world's economy. God does promise glory for those who love him, but it comes in a way that we don't always imagine. If you seek glory, then the problems and weaknesses and flaws of others will only feel like they're getting in the way of your glory. The problems of this world will only defeat you. If you're seeking glory, then people's faults will bother you. Their failures will crush you. Their burdens that you need to help them carry will only get in the way of you accomplishing your dreams in this life. But if we seek the cross, if we seek Jesus's way of true greatness and glory, then we will increasingly use all the blessings that he has given to us, power, authority, giftedness for the lost, the last, and the least among us. Because of the cross, there's power in weakness. There is glory in shame and there is wisdom in all things that seem foolish. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of the cross. And so Jesus is telling his disciples to have a, a certain kind of posture in the world and, and to take on a certain kind of action. It isn't just about what we feel, but it's, it is also about what we do, but he doesn't underestimate the power of just our posture in the world. He says, if you want to be great, be as the youngest. This is the posture we're to have. Let's look at the posture here. A posture, you, you know what posture is. You're familiar with posture. It's, it's your natural resting position. It's your nas- natural rest. If you just like rested and relaxed your muscles, where would your body just kind of sit into the chair, right? That's your posture. Bad posture over time leads to bad gestures and bad actions. Slumped over in your office chair for several hours a day will result in back pain, poor circulation, and digestive issues. So I've been told. (laughs) You have a natural posture to the world as well. When the world reacts in such a way that you don't like, you have a natural posture. You go to that natural place. What would you say is your current posture to your community? What would you say is your current posture to an unbelieving world? What would you say is your current posture to the problems that your neighborhood your world, your, our nation face on a daily basis. You may have a posture of condemnation. Shame on them. They should know better. We look at the world with a desire to be protected from all the bad stuff out there. We may have a posture of critique. We're always thinking about what's wrong with the world and very little about what's wrong with us. We may have a posture of copying start to act like the world, we speak like the world, we, we, we live no differently than those who don't know Jesus. And Jesus is simply telling his disciples and us that while there is so much to condemn and critique in the world, there's also a faithful way forward. There's a faithful way forward for the people that follow me. It's a different way than maybe you're used to. It will require the posture of a child and the gestures of a servant. This is what he's saying. So what, is, what does that mean? Posture of a child. The youngest, the newest, the freshest. 
It's the, the, the child, the, the youngest is like the rookie. What is Jesus talking about here? The one who is humble, the one who is unassuming. So this is, he's, starting, he's telling us about the youngest here. Jesus is describing the kind of person that acts like they just showed up, but they have the wisdom of the person that has been there the whole time. The youngest, he's talking about the posture of a person who is unassuming, humble. The, the story of the Bible reminds us that even though we have accomplished great things, even though God has done great things for us, we still needed Jesus to die for us. So how great could we actually really be? On your best day, it still resulted in God needing to send his son to die on the cross. So how good can we actually really be? So he's inviting us into a posture of humility, unassuming, um, unassumingness. We are to see someone's sin and to and see it as something bad and see it as something as a failure of God's glory and honor, but then realize that our sin was also so bad that there was no scenario in all existence where we could get better without Jesus having to die for us. That's how the youngest acts when they walk into a room. A room full of sinners, they're not repelled by it. They don't critique it. They don't condemn it. They don't copy it. They know who they are. They know that they needed God's grace. They're able to be humble and unassuming. We are to confront sin always with God's grace fresh on our own hearts. We are to confront sin always with God's grace fresh on our hearts. See, Jesus is not talking about not confronting sin. He's not talking about not critiquing or condemning sin. He's talking about our posture in a world that doesn't know God and a heart that is often self-righteous and thinks that we are deserving of what God has given to us. This is the posture of the youngest. But let's look at the gestures. What is the... What is, the, what is the gesture he calls us to? If we ever have this posture of humility and the grace of God and our need for it is constantly on our hearts, how will then we act? We will act as a servant. The role of a Christian in the world is more than intellectual. It's more than philosophical. It is purposeful activity. Our activity in the world is to be one as a servant. You know what I mean? Purposeful activity. It's about deciding to, to do things that are good, the best that Christians can offer this world is not what we stand for or what we stand against, but in how we live out our convictions. The best that we offer to the world is not our views on cultural issues or theological issues, but in how we take those convictions and live it in our life. It is to be actively stewards of our gifts it is to steward our talents. It is to steward our resources, not merely for personal consumption, but for the good of others. This may even seem like radical talk, but it is so common to the way Jesus talks all throughout the New Testament. That we are benefactors of God's gifts and we are to use these gifts for the good of others. That's not groundbreaking news. He calls us to live in such a way that advantages others, even, and here's where I'm going to get really radical, even if it disadvantages you. 
We are to live for the advantage of others, even if it disadvantages us. We, we do not only speak truth, but we live in light of the truth for the genuine advantage of others. And sometimes it will result in us being disadvantaged. Jesus shows us this. We're like, well, come on. Like, that doesn't sound like great triumphant faith. And then Jesus goes then into his next verse. He talks about himself as the one who is going to show this example perfectly. Connecting your community is rooted in the way that God has moved towards us. He's now showing us in his life, his death, his resurrection, what real success looks like. God's grace is the driving force of all change. God's grace is the driving force of all of our activities in the world. Engaging in God's mission is not the result of a can-do attitude. It's the result of an inward working of the gospel in our hearts to see our sin, to repent of, uh, of our sin and to exercise faith now in joy, engaging in joyful acts of sacrifice and service, even if it causes us to be disadvantaged. Nothing in the Christian life is a result of the can-do attitude. Nothing in the Christian life is about pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. The grace of God taking deep roots in our hearts is the fuel for living outward-focused and sacrificial lives. In a way, we look at this dinner table conversation that Jesus is having with his followers. Jesus and his disciples, they're having dinner together. They're at 52 tables, right? They signed up. <clears throat> they're here at this table, the first table. And they are seeing what salvation is really costing them. Jesus' comment is an explanation of what salvation is, and it goes a little like this. Jesus says, we agree what a leader looks like, right? We agree what a leader is. We agree what a servant is. So let me ask you this. Is the leader the one reclining at the table or the one serving the guests? It's the one reclining, right? The one that's just taken off the cares of the day and is being served by somebody else. We all agree, I'm the, I'm the leader, right? <laughs> I, you, we all agree that Jesus is the one. He is God's appointed Messiah and Savior. He says, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. He says, all glory and authority has been given to me. He says, we all agree, I'm the leader. And I'm telling you right now, I will act as the servant for you. I'm serving you, right? That's grace. That's the root of your salvation, that Jesus lives and dies for our advantage at great disadvantage to himself. How great? He took his own life. The, the total disadvantage. There is no, I mean, who, who gave more, you know, for your breakfast, the, the, the chicken or the, the pig? Right, the, the pig had to give the bacon, they probably died. The chicken just gives the egg, okay. <clears throat> so we're not meant to like give a little, Jesus says, I gave it all. I gave everything. I gave my life as a sacrifice for you so that you can enjoy me. What will save you? Not being Jewish. Not, not, it's not a matter of race. He's talking, it's not about your heritage. It's not about your tradition. It's God's salvation is not a matter of race. It's not about being successful. God's salvation is not a matter of economics or accomplishments. 
It's not about being nice. God's salvation is not a matter of personality. It's not about being hardworking and resourceful. God's salvation is not a matter of grit and determination. God's salvation is a matter of sheer grace from beginning to end and everything in between. What will save you? The only way is for Jesus, who is great, to become small, to become as the youngest, who is truly the leader, to become the servant, who is truly perfect to become our sin, and his, who is truly God to become dead. Out in the world, who are our leaders? The ones with the great record and the ones who climb to the top. Out in the world, who are the greatest? The ones who defeat their competition. But in Jesus' community, who are the leaders? The ones who know they've messed up and sinned and have turned their hearts to God in humble repentance. In Jesus' community, who are the greatest? The ones who lay down their own glory for God's glory. And this could be true only because of the cross, where we see what looks like failure is actually triumph. And at first glance, it doesn't seem logical that our salvation should, be, should move us to serve others. How does the grace of God really move us to serve others on mission? It doesn't seem like it would, but it, it really should. Because a desire to serve others arises from a heart that's been touched by God's grace. Because of what God has done for me, because how he has accepted me when I was his enemy, then I can serve my earthly enemies. God's grace allows us to walk into a room and to not need to be the most important person in that room, but as someone who just showed up, ready to serve, ready to bless. My credentials don't mean anything. My degrees don't mean anything. My experience doesn't mean anything as far as it concerns you, but I'm here to serve you and to use what I have been blessed in for your advantage, even if it means my disadvantage. I promise you will have you have opportunity to put this into practice very, very soon. Like on the car ride home today. <laughs> How can I use what God has given to me to be a servant to others with a posture of humility and the grace of God constantly on my heart and an act of purposeful service to people? As you put your children to bed, as you drive home in the car, as you walk into the world this week in your workplace or in your community, as you have conversations with people who think things very different from you, as you ache in your heart, as you see the effects of sin and wickedness in the world, you will have opportunity to allow the grace of God to rest firmly on your heart and to overflow in acts of compassion and service. how can you apply that in your church? You know, there may be many options, many opportunities. We've talked about it a lot, but maybe here's one I thought of. Maybe, you know, you're thinking, I even heard people talking, and this is great, talking to their friends. Hey, which service are you going to go to? First or second? All right, cool. All right, that's what I'll go to, you know. Listen, if you see, if you come to a service, you see a lot of people who look a lot like you, go to the other one. See a lot of people who are older than you, in that service, stay there. <laughs> Say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not just be with the people like me or look like me or the ones I interact with all the time. I'm going to branch out. I'm going to connect. I'm going to get to know people that are different. 
See, we have two services that are identical because we don't want to have like a, a young service and with all the, the young kids and then, and then another service that, where people aren't so young. <laughs> if you see a need in our church, you know, go and serve, even if it means a, a disadvantage to you. And I promise when you live in this upside down kingdom, that Christ has called us into, it is there you will find the real life that he has called us to. It's there you will find the joy. It's there you will experience in a such deep way the character, nature, and love of Jesus. And we do this all, right? Motivated with the grace of God always on our mind. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.